I'm Matsudiso, a musician, songwriter, producer and composer. I also teach. I'm fascinated by process, how we make what we make, why we make what we make. As a musician, I'm always learning from and inspired by other creatives, other musicians, artists, the arts itself, people. In short, life all inform the music I make. And I think that learning from others enriches not only our own art, but the arts. And why holding up the ladder? Well, because we're all trying to get somewhere and I think we build something stronger if we help each other. If we hold up the ladder rather than pull it up from under us as we climb. I'll be talking to all kinds of creatives about process, lessons learned, things that inspire us, the music we're listening to, what makes us who we are and the help we've had along the way. So join me as we climb, holding up the ladder. I've recorded and re-recorded the introduction to today's episode more than once. I've been trying to get the tone of it right. I recorded this episode with my American guest the day before the US elections and two days before England went into a second lockdown. As I speak, Biden has claimed victory and Trump still hasn't conceded. You see, on the one hand, the world feels incredibly noisy. In fact, not just noisy, I'd say dissonant. It's not solely the US elections or this pandemic or anti-racist protests in the States, the explosion in Beirut, protesting the end of SARS in Nigeria, the beheading of French school teacher Samuel Petty, or the Ethiopian prime minister sending troops into the northern state of Tigray, threatening civil war. It's everything happening all at once at the same volume with the same seeming intensity that doesn't seem to be easing off. It's why I had to log out of social media to give my brain a break. I promise I'm not trying to make you depressed. I suppose what I'm trying to say is that I've not known the world to feel this polarised, in our lifetime at least. Yet in the midst of this socio-political and cultural dissonance, I don't know about you, but I found myself very quiet, thinking a lot about the arts, about where us artists fit in this global cultural landscape, about the importance of hope, of beauty, of making, of inspiration, of joy, especially when it can sometimes feel like you're not allowed. It can feel inappropriate, like laughing at a funeral when everyone is weeping. Which is why my conversation with today's guest, artist Makoto Fujimura, couldn't have come at a more opportune time. Now that's the way to think about culture. Culture, if you poison the land, the entire soil gets tainted. Nobody can grow anything, right? And and the if the purpose is to grow something, you know, uh, tomato that is beautiful, then you have to think more about the process than you would otherwise. You know, if you're just mechanically producing as efficient as possible, if you're sharing in a communal garden to produce something together then you think about the soil and the health of the soil. You think about generations of actually tomato plants that can begin to uh, be produced there. You keep the seeds and you, you know, you go into the next season. And the more you do that together, the better the tomato is going to be. Born in Boston, Makoto, or Mako, the name he goes by, is an artist, arts advocate, writer, thinker and filmmaker. He studied 16th and 17th century Japanese art in Japan and practices the Japanese art of Nihonga, or slow art. This beautiful, refractive art requires you to slow down 
in order to see what's happening in the painting, sometimes 10-15 minutes at a time and then a whole world opens up, colours that you hadn't seen before unless you slow down to look. And that's what it felt like talking to Mako, slowing down, slowing down to look, to listen, to think, to feel. In a, in a sense, I don't have to have a purpose because um, there's a kind of a calling that uh, materiality, materials um, call you out and want to express uh, themselves. And, um, and I listen to that, you know, I, I hear sound, I hear music through what I do. Um, so I, I consider my work as much of music as, as it is visual. We talk about the work he does with the organisation he founded, I Am Culture Care, creating a space where culture isn't fought over, but rather nurtured like a garden. We talk about hearing the music in art, about art as sound, about finding genesis moments in art, creating out of darkness, out of suffering. We talk about creating communal tables that, to quote Mako, enduring art cannot be created without a covenantal community. We talk about the Japanese art of kintsugi, the art of mending to make new, finding beauty in brokenness. Um, you know, kintsugi is a beautiful metaphor for new creation because it is about mending to make new with gold rather than fixing to make it look perfect. You accentuate the fractures, the imperfections, and then that resulting kintsugi bowl is more valuable than the original before it broke. That is the most beautiful example of something, uh, you know, kind of an antidote to Western industrial perfection. I loved talking to Mako. My mind was opened up to think in a new way. And what I love about new ways of thinking is that it gives way to new ways of seeing and new ways of making. Makoto Fujimura, thank you so much for taking your time out today to to speak with me. I'm really looking forward to it. Oh, same here. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's funny, I've been researching you um, and it's been, it's almost like you, you start one thing and you find something else. It's like a labyrinth. <laughs> so you're an artist, a writer, a thinker, an art advocate, a filmmaker. Um, tell me, how did you get started? So... I see myself as an artist um, and everything I speak about, everything I do uh, has that base. And, um, and I, it started very early. I have a painting that my mother kept. Uh, I did this painting when I was three, apparently, and uh, she framed it and gave it to me as a graduation gift from college. And, um, you know, it, as a three-year-old, um, I am painting a very non-objective painting, but all the colors are the same and the gestures are very similar to what I do today. <laughs> and uh, my mother saw something in me uh, early on that she perhaps saw in her uncles that uh, were artists. One was a playwright, one was a painter. And um, thought that I had something of a similar uh, gifting. And so without, you know, saying too much, she stewarded uh, that well, I think. And um, 
you know, I have this painting to prove it. I have it uh, framed and re reframed and um, in, in, my, in my home, as I come to my studio, I look at it every day. Um, it, it is a, um, uh, you know, this it has this uh, childlike naive confidence, <laughs> which I perhaps need uh, today. And so I remind myself, you know, that's, that's what I want to do today is to have that confidence and, and be able to paint freely uh, without thinking about an audience, without worrying about what this would mean to the world. Um, I was just uh, painting with my sheer instinct. Um, and what was the picture of? Was it an abstract thing or was it? Yeah, very abstract. It's kind of a sweaty little thing, but with many colors and many colors that I use today. So Interesting. I mean, isn't that something that Picasso said that he spent, you know, he did all this training to learn to draw like a child again? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, you're unlearning in some sense, but uh, developing this more sophisticated naivete in another um, and um, you're always working toward the freedom of gesture that you once had. Mm. And I know you were you were born in Boston but did you ever live in Japan or? Yes yeah, so after Boston my father is a research scientist we went to Sweden and then that's when apparently I painted this image and then uh, we were back we were in Japan, um, so I'm an American citizen uh, by birth and by choice. Uh, I chose American citizenship when I was 18, but um, we spent about, I'm going to say about seven years in Japan, and I was in U.S. after that. Okay, um, and you studied 16th and 17th century Japanese art. Um, it's funny, you know, one of the reasons, I'm just going to backtrack a little bit, but one of the reasons I wanted to interview you, I had watched this documentary about this sushi master. Yes. I can't remember the name of the documentary, but it's... Jiro, uh, right? This is, yeah. Exactly, Jiro. This, yeah. And yeah. I, I was watching the meticulous way he devoted himself to the art of making sushi. And I remember it really slowed me down. Yes. <laughs> and and I, I thought, gosh, the way someone has so devoted his life to the art of this small niche thing. And it reminded me of your of, of your work. I thought, let me revisit um, some of uh, Makoto's work. And I remember watching this whole video you have on Nihonga and slow art. And I could feel myself slowing down. Mm. Wow. Like really? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So I was in Japan back again with Japanese governmental scholarship to focus on 16th century and 17th century art and um, spend a lot of time in that area. Actually, that's in Shimbashi Station um, underneath the ground there, uh, you know, his restaurant. Mm -hmm. And um, there are many galleries there, and I had my first show nearby in Ginza district. And so uh, that, that movie is very uh, meaningful to me for various reasons. <laughs> and uh, you're right, I, I think Japanese aesthetic has a particular um, propensity toward you know, the slowness or uh, careful uh, attentiveness to details and uh, I think uh, the entire ecosystem of Nihonga, Japanese style paintings, 
that I studied is very much about that um, way aesthetic that flows out of 16th and 17th century Japan, uh, but somehow is preserved today. And uh, even though it's disappearing as well, you know, the, and there are many things about that movie that capture that um, sensibility and the value of it. So tell me a little bit more about Nihonga and what it means in your process, because I know you layer mm -hmm. paint yeah. and then it has to dry and it takes a really yeah. long time to dry and then you yeah. layer it but it's it's deeply beautiful i, I would love yeah. to see it in yeah. person yeah. because it's you have to flow down so tell tell me more about that yeah it's refractive prismatic uh the each of the uh, minerals are pulverized by hand so they they, they are uh, if you look under a microscope you see these shards uh, like literally like prisms um, that are of different shape but of same weight because they you know they um, they have a way of uh, selecting different uh, coarseness and weight of the pigment. So you, you can choose, for example, n number nine pigment uh, as right, uh, which is coarser than number 11. And, uh, you know, there's, um, if you go further in that spectrum, it's, uh, you can go to white malachite, which is typically used in uh, oil and um, other methods. And and so it's, it's an incredible, uh thing thing to use and and the layering is very difficult because of that because the coarseness and unevenness of that but um once you learn to layer these uh prismatic elements you're gonna have la layers that are literally uh prismatic so so even though initially you come into a blue surface uh, after you spend time with it, I, I, I call it slow art because it takes it does take 10, 15 minutes before your eye uh, is allowed to see. You know, the brain shuts down what you're seeing um, for, as a survival mechanism. So you, you have to let that go. And once you start to really use your eyes, you begin to see rainbows and, and all sorts of things that you never thought um, the, this monochromatic painting could could happen and that's how you know David Brooks of New York Times um, came into one of my studio uh, gallery exhibits and and I told him that and you know he he, he was skeptical he, he just spent about 10 minutes sitting in front of it and and uh, it, there was this um, audible gasp um, he said I cannot believe I didn't see what I saw you know after 10 minutes of slowing down. And he said, I saw entire cosmos open up in, in front of me. And then that, that's when he wrote the New York Times op-ed about slow art and kintsugi and all that, but yeah. <laughs> oh, that's incredible. So, so I'm wondering then when you're in your studio and you're making these things, what are you, well, two things. Mm. Why are you making it? Yeah. And what are you wanting people to experience? If we have to slow down and really look, yeah, why and what are you wanting us to experience? It's a good question. I I think there's an intrins intrinsic reason um, that that I, you know, in a sense, I don't have to have a purpose because um, 
there's a kind of a calling that uh, materiality materials um, call you out and want to express uh, themselves and um, and I listen to that you know I, I hear sound I hear music through what I do um, so I, I consider my work as much of music as, as it is visual but um, and I don't I try not to actually think about the audience. Um, I, uh, of course, when you're doing exhibits and such, you know, you have to think about size and um, the, you know, exhibit space and all that. But when I'm painting in my studio, I, I try to let myself work with materials, what is in front of me, and also what I select as something that I feel. Um, is almost like a scientific experiment. You know, you do one painting and a good painting will give birth to 10 other paintings. So, I, you know, you, it's a, this endless way of finding new discoveries. And, and when I have those one painting that maybe engenders a, another painting, sometimes literally because I, I would use one painting to, uh, almost create uh, you you see these two large paintings in the back but one is an imprint of the other but manipulated imprint so they're almost like prints you know of the one another I, I love this idea of generativity and one giving birth to another and vice versa so so I, I have an internal compass I uh, mechanism and ecosystem uh, that these paintings exist, its own world in a sense. And and um, so I don't think about an audience that much other than, you know, when, when I'm editing it down for an exhibit, um, I'm opening an uh, exhibit in Taipei uh, in a few weeks and Taipei is the safest place in the world right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, I work with a gallery there that represents my work in Asia. And um, for that, you know, you think about the theme and you think about which paintings and, and so forth. Uh, and there's that natural editing process. But when I'm painting, I, I try to be as much as I can to allow my intuition to work, um, to uh, perhaps answer questions that I had, you know, my previous work that I couldn't get to or that the work, previous work has given birth to. And and so it's it's it, it it feels a lot like you know my father's research, which is um, having control to select out you know possible outcomes and narrowing it down so you can uh, you can discover truth. And um, so th 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 that is kind of the process that I find myself in uh, uh, working with. Right. So I'm intrigued when you said you hear sound because I'm a musician. So okay, yeah. Are you have you have you got synesthesia or is this? Yeah, sort of a mild one. I I uh, only happens um, specifically when when I hear sound. I see um, uh, my good friend Susie Barra, who's a percussionist and composer and uh, a brilliant uh, composer. And I have collaborated, and when she plays, I, I literally see things. Um, and she she said that when I paint, she hears sound. 
Um, so these 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 are called Walking on Water, and um, we have been collaborating. She went to uh, record with her under underwater mic uh, microphone uh, at the um, hydroponic microphone to record glaciers melting down in the Himalayan hills, and turn that into her own composition. And I'm responding to that with these images done with uh, azurite, amatocyte pigments, pulverized pigments to depict cries of the earth. And, and so in, in that re relationship and collaboration, literally we are hearing things and you know seeing things um, as we sometimes paint live. I, uh, I, I'm so locked in with her music, it doesn't matter if there's, you know, a thousand people. We, we did this in Carnegie Hall once and, and, and in private uh, settings where there was a film crew and us in the gallery. It, it doesn't seem to make a difference. Um, the, the, uh, when I hear a sound, I, I see things. And so it makes it very easy to do these collaborations. It doesn't happen with all musicians, as it turns out. Um, you know, I tried and it doesn't work with others. <laughs> so. Yes, because I you have a podcast, the Culture Care podcast. Is that is that right? Yes, yes. And, yeah. and her music is featured. And the yes. next episode will be entirely her, uh, which we're very excited about. We're just editing that right now. Fantastic. Yeah, because I started listening to it and that yeah. that excites me on many levels. There is um, um I'm always talking about this scientist that I watched about I want to say maybe 20 years ago called Bernie Krauss and he records nature. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and he was with George Martin, who used to produce the producer of the Beatles, and he they were in nature, and he had um he had these really good microphones that were recording the sound of tree cells when they're dry and they're deprived of water, but they absorb water very fast. Their cells explode. Yeah, wow. And he slowed the sound down for our human hearing. And it sounds like the most sophisticated percussion. Wow. It blew my mind. And I thought <laughs> I pondered this for years and years and years, just about how there is so much happening around us that we're not aware of. Yeah. Um, that either we need technology to enable us to hear or like what you're saying with Susie Barr and how you work, there is a locked inness that you need to have. And again, a slowing down like your art to slow down to look because it can be happening, but you don't necessarily see it unless you. Right. Yeah. 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 It, it is. It opens up some mystery that, you know, we, we don't pay attention to perhaps in, in conventional ways and Technology certainly is, is opening up new possibilities. So I have so many things to ask you because I've just been <laughs> contemplating your work for, for really okay. quite a few weeks. So I'm like trying to to like break down what I ask, but um, I'm, I'm thinking again about this Nahonga and the video I watched, there was a gentleman that was talking about how he was looking at your work and he experienced healing through it. Yeah. And it got me looking at the work you do with the Japanese art of Kintsugi. Yeah, yeah. Which 
just reading more about it, I find so beautiful. So, you know, you mend in gold to make new this idea of looking at the cracks and allowing the cracks of these broken things to speak to you and not, I, I think in the West, we are, the, the idea of pain is something we don't want. Yes, avoid and yeah. But this idea of taking something painful and then finding beauty in it that actually elevates is incredible. So please tell me some more about what you do with Kintsugi and yeah, tell me more about that. Yeah, so Kintsugi came out of Japan lacquer tradition, which it was harkens back to centuries. I mean, uh, you know, way back, like uh, before um, uh, even modern uh, idea of history, you know, and um, so Japan lacquer is made from poison sumac. Uh, it's it, it's it's a difficult material to use, and it's been a secret tradition really until recently. Um, uh, one Kintsugi master, Nakamura-san, who I collaborate with, uh, had this uh, uh, revelation, really, that Kintsugi shouldn't be a secret, um, but it should be a healing technique that can be taught um, to even children. And he wanted to do this after the tsunami of 311, uh, 2011, devastating tsunami up north, uh, with many orphaned children in elementary schools. He wanted to bring kintsugi and have them bring in um, what remained um, in their homes and would work as a kintsugi master with them to create these pieces. And he thought to himself, well, if I did it, for them, that's one thing, you know, that will mean something. But if they can do it themselves, then, you know, they can continue to do it. Um, so he came up with a uh, unique uh, new urushi or new Japan lacquer, which is based on cashew nuts. Um, and, and so a child can do it. And he developed this technique where he can do a workshop in an afternoon. And basically you learn how to do the basics of kintsugi and when i heard about that i was really um moved and i went to visit him in tokyo brought a film crew with me and um and they interviewed him and uh, we ended up inviting him to come to us um and it just happened that he was interested in doing this um to broaden the craft of kintsugi uh into places that don't know uh, Japan lacquer. And, and so we've been doing these, you know, launch Kintsugi Academy as a way to train leaders to, but this is not just to do Kintsugi, but, you know, to help people to, un to understand culture care, which is what I call culture care, which is an uh, alternative to cultural wars of fighting for territory of culture, but instead tending to the land, tending to the garden of culture um, to pass it on to the next generation. And Kintsugi is a perfect way to enter this uh, understanding uh, way of um, stewarding uh, nature and by using our hands to learn rather than talk about it or argue about it, debate. Uh, we, we just simply sit down and uh, mend fractured bowls. Um, anybody can do it. And um, when we start to do it, magic 
happens. And um, every workshop we've done, uh, you know, before the shutdown, and now uh, we have to do it remotely right now, but um, something happens, something drops, and, and a person is just simply trying to attach a broken plate back to each other using gel glue and then Japan lacquer and gold. Um, you know, Kintsugi is a beautiful metaphor, metaphor for new creation because it is about mending to make new with gold rather than fixing to make it look perfect. You accentuate the fractures, the imperfections, and then that resulting Kintsugi ball is more valuable than the original before it broke. So that that is the most beautiful example of something, uh, you know, kind of an antidote to Western industrial perfection. Um, this this is how most of us <laughs> experience life. We we go through brokenness, and what to do about that, you know, is 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 the re result of uh, Western you know mindset that has created this uh, pressure to be perfect and to, you know, if you're broken, you fix it as if so that nobody knows, right? But this Japanese way of heating is so, uh, Japanese way of mending is so heating because you know, no, you accentuate the fractures. You value your fractures. You, in fact, uh, you know, one of the Kintsugi um, path is to hold the fragments and behold the fragments for a long time before you, try to mend it. And um, if you learn to do that, and if you can see the fragments, broken pieces as beautiful, then the work can begin to understand what this generative potential of your piece can bring to your own life. It's so powerful what you're saying, especially the, in the world that we're in now. And I should say, this is the day before US elections, we're having this conversation. And um, I love what you said about, um, you know, we are in these culture wars. Um, and I, I, I don't know if I've ever known a time where the world has felt so polarised. And um, I, I was actually listening uh, to um, the former US Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia um, was and he was a Republican, you know, and he was very good friends with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was a Democrat. And, you know, they, they were asking him, you know, how are you guys such good friends when you have such opposing opinions? And he says, he said something really stuck with me, he says, I attack ideas, not people. Yeah. And yeah, go ahead. No, I I was in uh, the room when that one of those conversations happened. As a national council and the arts member, we we invited them to be part of our opera heritage uh, celebration, and um, the, the both of them on stage. It, it, uh, that could have been the interview that you saw, but um, it, it was it's a remarkable, remarkable uh, friendship um, and uh, deep. Uh, um, and, and genuine. Uh, it wasn't a show. Um, they loved opera. And uh, on stage, they would argue about which opera they liked the most, you know. And, and they cared more about that, um, perhaps, than what 
you know, what, what separated them, uh, which was very significant, you know, portal opposite of ideologies. And we forget that through the arts, we can have these relationships. Um, and if we can lay aside, uh, you know, some of the fractured differences and polarization that tactics that culture wars will force us to have. Um, and we don't have to, <laughs> you know, that's, that's the thesis of cultural care is, cultural care is an antidote. It's not a war against cultural wars. It, it is an antidote to um, understand that, you know, we as human beings have an alternative path and we don't have to choose to live in fear and scarcity mindset. Um, and we, we can choose to understand what artists of uh, all shapes, uh, you know, will understand that there is some abundance in the universe built in and we don't have to um, cater to um, this uh, zero sum game of uh, limited resource environment and that's why we sing, right? That's why we paint. Um, we are projecting something that is for the future. Um, even if no one sees it, uh, the act of doing it is to uh, understand that there is abundance behind the universe that, that we can tap into. So, yeah. So, so tell me a little bit more in, in your mind. And obviously you've been doing this work for a very long time. What does... Um, in a good way. I don't mean like a very long time. Oh, no, 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 no. I, I, I have been. I have been, yes. <laughs> um, what, what does a space where we are cultivating this ecosystem of culture, like you talk about a, a garden, what does it look like? And how do we now, especially now, start engaging with this culture care that you're talking about? Yeah, so garden is a good metaphor. Um, ecosystem is a good, good metaphor. Um, and, and Kintsugi table is a good metaphor. You know, when Kintsugi uh, workshop is happening, there may be 10 people around the table. And everybody's a stranger. You know, no, usually they, they, sometimes they'll bring friends and, you know, uh, a couple, husband and wife will come. But, um, and they don't necessarily ask to you know when you're entering um what is your political stripe or what do you believe about this and that you know there's no question and there's no need to and when you are sitting around and when you're taking fragments pieces um, that you have brought um and we ask people to bring something that's meaningful to them if they if they can um, because that's the most powerful way that we can experience Kinsey. And in a span of two hours, they, they, they're working and the room is absolutely silent, which, which doesn't happen, right? <laughs> it, when, you know, you're with total strangers and the room is absolutely silent because everybody is focused on what they're doing. And then somebody will say something like, I brought this, uh, you know, broken cup because this was my... Uh, ex-boyfriend, you know, it's gift, or, you know, I brought this because this was my mother's, or, you know, and, and all of a sudden, the entire room kind of opens up, um, and everybody starts to share something about their journey, um, and before you know it, you know, you, you're talking about, because our hands, 
lead the way. Uh, you know, somatic knowledge is leading leading the way into a conversation rather than a predicted, you know, categories. You know, you're this or you're that, right? Um, we you just all experienced Kintsugi, and that's enough, right? That's enough to build trust that you are feeding something about your process and those are more powerful that can override perhaps the differences that you know you might see in each other or suspicion that we might have and and so I think that's what it looks like and oftentimes you know in the room there are artists there are musicians there are artists and they're they're writers and they're and they're the ones, and they're pastors sometimes, they, you know, and they, they would go the next day and they send me something, um, whether it be music, art, or, you know, uh, uh, a sermon, you know, that they, they have given next week. They, they will, you know, send these things. And I, I, I often think, you know, generativity flows out of these moments and um, what should happen in our gatherings, communal gatherings, is that first of all, you know, we don't have, we don't necessarily have need to justify our existence, right? Mm -hmm. If you're invited to a table, you are welcome, uh, no matter what you believe or what you think, right? And if you're gonna do Kintsugi, you know, we're gonna do that together and, and, and be focused on that. But once you are into the process, you begin to think, okay, so, this is not about this broken ceramic in front of me, but it's about me. And I, and, and then all these memories will, will start to pop up. And, and if you share that, right, then it triggers other people's memories. And before you know it, in a span of three hours, you have communicated with your total stranger in ways that you have not done even with your spouse you know <laughs> it's kind of crazy but but that many people have this experience and and so i think it's possible to create a communal table where these conversations can be had and i think artists are critical for this because art like kintsugi is 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 the you know let's say a venerable tradition that human beings have come up with over the years to refine them so that it has accessibility to people who may not be artists, right? So when they hear a song, when they see a painting, when they read a poem, they connect part of that, perhaps it's the fragments, you know, that, 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 that is connected to that piece of work and it creates a universal table through which we can, we can communicate. And but we have forgotten how to do this, and the discourse today is so polarized that you know you open your mouth and all of a sudden you're having a fight, you know, and and we need something like Kintsugi table where or, or gardening together is another one, right? You you're gardening, um, you know, growing tomatoes together here in New Jersey and United States, and. Um, let's say the person that you're working with in a, in a same garden, community garden, is the complete opposite, you know, like Antonio Scalia and Ruth Ginsburg. But you love, you love tomatoes, <laughs> you know, and, and the, the thing to do is not to create categories of, well, you're a Democrat, you know, you're gonna grow Democrat tomatoes and I'm gonna grow Republican tomatoes. No, you, you wanna grow good tomatoes. That's the purpose, right? So you, you have this common 
purpose that you know you're going to work together now let's say you disagree about you know what how to do this right well the thing first thing you have to think about is my is my action in producing this tomato is going is it going to harm the other person's tomato that's a natural way you think about it if you're doing a garden together. You don't put pesticides in the ground because that's going to poison the whole soil, even though you may not like dandelions, you know, <laughs> growing next to the tomato. You, you think about the other first because the soil is, is common. Now, that's the way to think about culture. Culture, if you poison the land, the entire soil gets tainted. Nobody can grow anything. <laughs> Right. And and the if the purpose is to grow something, you know, uh, tomato that is beautiful, then you have to think more about the process than you would otherwise. You know, if you're just mechanically producing as efficient as possible tomatoes that are, you know, that are resilient to bugs or whatever, then you might have a you know secluded area where you do that um i wouldn't recommend eating that tomato but you know people do that right but if you're sharing in a communal garden to produce something together then you think about the soil and the health of the soil you think about generations of actually tomato plants that can begin to uh, be produced there you keep the seeds and you you know you go into the next season and the more you do that together, the better the tomato is going to be. Um, and so, uh, you know, that's the same thing with culture. Um, instead of, you know, trying to like, you know, categorically uh, identify differences and why you are right and they're wrong, uh, we should be thinking about what kind of fruit do we want to eat and, you know, who is producing that fruit and, you know, that, that kind of mindset uh, all of a sudden changes from uh, differences to the common soil and how to cultivate the soil for the next generation. Incredible. I love this idea of a communal table yeah. um, and also this idea that part of taking the time to say, well, what is it that we all want? Right. It also requires us to, to not be so reactive, but to say, hang on, what is it? You know, we all want to grow tomatoes here. So we all need the soil to be good for all of us, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and I was reading two of your articles um, on art, love and beauty. And you, you said something that really struck me, you know, just why art matters. And, um, you know, we often talk about, or you talk about the argument against utilitarian pragmatism, like, does it have a use? What's the function? And you say, uh, the arts are completely indispensable precisely because they are useless in the utilitarian sense. Yeah. <laughs> And and I love that. I I felt like reading your work is giving me permission to be, to pursue the art that I do even more. And I, and I love it, you know. So talk to me about that because, yeah. you know, you talked about, you know, th this culture care, but why art matters. And the, another thing I just want to say, because I love what you said, you said artists are the canaries in the coal mine. 
they smell the poison and start singing. And I and I think about, you know, music, for example, and, and say the music the musicians of the of the seventies and how all these songs that spoke about culture and and spoke about a world we a world that we wanted to look different, you know? So talk to me about why art is so completely indispensable. I love it. Yeah, so I think that's part of our industrialized uh, way of looking for efficiencies and purposefulness, right? And and we have forgotten that um, the most important thing that we will remember on our deathbeds is not the accomplishments, the resumes, the you know how many cars you have in your parking lot. It's these intangibles conversations uh, it's it's relationships it's 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 things that you cannot market right so the marketing you know people are trying to get at that right to 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 accentuate the transcendence of an object that you don't need <laughs> in order for you to feel connected with it and that's that's the marketing path now we we gotten to a point where we have lost entirely the value of that experience, that intangible experience, that marketing team is trying to use. So that marketing is no longer successful or, or even, you know, it doesn't produce any, you know, reaction because we're numb to everything being sold us that way. Now, artists are kind of type of people um, who have resisted this instinctively, whether you know it or not, you, you have said that I have been given a certain gift and it is not to be commoditized, right? And there's nothing wrong with commoditizing yet. We need to do it to pay rent, um, uh, you know, or do something else to pay rent. But, but art fundamentally is a gift. And this is what Lewis Hyde argues, H-Y-D-E in the book, The Gift, which is a book that I, when I'm mentoring a young artist, I always start with that. Um, Lewis Hyde notes this, that art is not a commodity, but a gift. And gift fundamentally has to be the, uh, the, the, the center of any generative activity, including capitalism. <laughs> he, he argues that, you know, this is not a, you know, uh, kind of a Marxist uh, anti-capitalist statement. It's, it's essential to capitalism to have artists be artists because otherwise the marketing cannot work. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't create, artists are creating transcendence of our time and they're capturing something about what, what we need as human beings to be fully human. You know, so if the industrial revolution has caused us to be seen as machines, efficient and purposeful, then we have to recover that sense of being fully human. And who's doing that? It's the artists. They, they have rebelled, they have kind of resisted. And whether we know it or not, we have been creating things that doesn't make sense to the industrial sense. Again, nothing wrong with making that into a transactional object, you know, setting your paintings and music and so forth. But if you lose the fundamental reality of your art being a gift to yourself and to the world, then you lose the very heart of why you're creating to begin with. 
So the, these are things that I, I think um, are very important for artists to realize, but, but also, you know, when I talk about culture care, when I talk about the entrepreneurial business practices or leadership or even politics and even, you know, running a company, you know, uh, what is a generative company look like? What, what does, it, you know, relationship and an organization, can that be uh, just as, or, you know, a, a valuing of each, each person's gift? Um, and I believe it can. I, I think I think it has to, right? Uh, otherwise, the you know if you go to work, and if that is entirely a separate uh, you know transactional reality, then when you are home with your family, there's there's gonna be a schism that you cannot repair, right? And and you you're, you're widening the schism every time you go to work, but if there's some sense that we can be as human beings remain human beings um, practicing law or or you know running a company or you know running for an office i mean those the, i think those are things that artists you know can, are gifted to provide now society has not encouraged this so we end up being pushed into the margins or being conscripted into the front lines of culture, culture wars. And neither way, you, you, you will find yourself being able to thrive uh, long term. Um, you, you just can't simply do it for so long. Uh, you're going to burn out. And so it's, it's very important for artists to remain themselves, uh, to, to go back to their first love, and and to do music, art, and theater for for what we began with, which is which is a sheer childlike, you know, uh, draw to what we're doing and what we're creating. Two things, as you were saying, really struck me. I was thinking, you know, artists, as you say, they rebel, but I think, that, and they resist. But I feel like, on the one hand, artists have suffered for their resistance. And then on the other hand, people that haven't pursued that path and they are caught in this sort of solely transactional utilitarian space have also suffered because there is, as you say, this schism. And so I'm wondering, how do we bridge this gap? Yeah, so I, I talk about in my book, Cultural Care, and, and by the way, I'm coming up with a new book called Art and Faith uh, Theology of Making, which which is the kind of a, theology underneath cultural care. Um, but cultural care uh, is written to a general audience. And um, and so I try to not uh, speak about, you know, biblical principles or uh, things that are at the heart of, you know, how I think about things, but, you know, it doesn't mean that the world. So I kind of retranslate um, the works that I, I believe, you know, this principle of abundance, for example, that uh, anybody can understand. And in my culture care book, I, I talk about three Gs. Uh, now the, those, the list has grown to like eight Gs, but <laughs> um, you know, they are Genesis principle, the Genesis uh, moments um, that we create that every, every moment is a Genesis moment. It doesn't matter what happened uh, previous to today. 
um, whether that been a major failure or major brokenness or um, you know whatever we experience, this is a new day and this is a new moment. And there's gener generative Genesis moments awaiting for us if we are open to that. Uh, and the second thing is, is uh, G, is generosity. And this is where I speak to artists. I said, you know, artists are the most generous people in the world. I, I know you and, you know, I know you have been that. Uh, but what happened, right? We go into our scarcity mindset. We are fearful of, you know, whatever industrialization taking over or, you know, uh, we're being misunderstood. And we have become just as scarcity mindset as the industrialists, you know, who, who have been uh, dehumanizing the world. Um, and so let's be generous again. Um, give away our art, you know, and let art speak on its own. Um, it doesn't mean you give away in a way that you can't make a living, you know. Um, so so I, can, I can teach you certain principles of how to balance that, you know, to pay rent and be able to, but, you know, I tell uh, artists who are waiters, um, you know, before the shutdown um, uh, all the time that, you know, are you waiting tables uh, in order to make art or are you waiting tables to pay rent? Those are two fundamentally different ways of waiting tables. Uh, if you're waiting tables to pay rent, you will be able to pay rent, but nothing more. But if you're waiting tables to make art, you'll be able to pay rent and make art. <laughs> so, you know, the mindset um, is very important. And if you think generatively, if you think generously, you can, you know, kind of turn the tables on, on a scarcity-ridden world. And the third uh, G is the generational piece, which we talked about with Kintsugi. But, you know, do everything uh, that we can to, to cultivate the soil for the next generation. If the soil is poisoned, as it is today, decimated, a wasteland, really, then we have to do hard work of amending the soil and working to detox the soil, um, which I think Kintsugi is part of the you know uh, way to do that. This is fa it's fantastic. I've you know as you're talking, I'm always writing something down because you just my brain, your the synapses in my brain are firing. You know, but what I love about what you're saying is. You know, when we when we think in new ways, it actually creates freedom. Yes. And I and I really believe that to create art, I, I'm one of those people that doesn't believe that you need to be, you know, depressed or miserable is the only way you're going to write a good song or one of those things. I actually think the freer you are, the freer you are, like children are, the more room you have to create and explore and all of those things. So I really love what you're saying. You know, it's making me think differently, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and, and by the way, that tension, right, of um, facing um, whatever it is that, that, that is our struggle is also an entry point. It's also a genesis moment. You know, how many... Um, how many masterpieces of literature has been written in prisons? How many, you know, uh, art, how much art has been, uh, came out of traumatized times of war? 
if you remove all of these uh, works, um, there, will, there will not be any art left actually, uh, right? So, so those points of tension, points that uh, we struggle with, they, they are actually entry points and, and uh, emotions and anger and, and um, you know, despair even um, is something that is, is, is a way to understand ourselves certainly and it's it's you know art is not a cure for that um, but it, art can allow you to pay attention to name them and that can be a way for others perhaps to receive that and and be able to create something generative with it and so it is a sacrifice um, and it, it's not easy. Um, and artists are the ones that have taken on this mantle of a very difficult, if not impossible task of um, looking at this scarcity in front of us, looking at the devastation in front of us and, and yet still continuing to, to work. And, and so uh, fortunately we have plenty of evidences in, in, in our history um, of, you know, Frangelico painting at the time of Black Plague, Shakespeare writing at the time of Black Plague. You know, he couldn't, he couldn't build a theater in London because of the plague and the scandalous nature of theater, right? So what did he do? He created a whole theater that was, you know, sequestered theater <laughs> that um, created plays that spoke to the sequestered layers of, you know, people listening to, to the plays and, and so forth. So, so it's, it's really remarkable uh, history, look back in history, any kind of music, any kind of, you know, Beethoven's music, right? Um, which T.S. Eliot listened to over and over because he was traumatized by the war. You know, he had to listen to the last um, quartets because that, gave him, uh, you know, the, the impetus to create four quartets. And, and so that is, it's, it's, it's throughout history. And, and, you know, for us, yes, despair is, is a real issue. And, and, and what we struggle with anger is a real issue. Darkness is part of life. But we, we need to also remember that, you know, we, we have the ability to create windows to to see the vista outside incredible and and interesting you refer to t.s Eliot because obviously you did the work the quartets yeah. yeah which is like an art this beautiful collaborative art and music and poetry and with uh, tell us rather than me say it, you explain it because i think you'll do better <laughs> well a friend of mine is a painter and um and Bruce Herman, and he loves four quartets and he teaches and, um, and you know, and, and I, uh, I ended up um, being a ground zero resident because I lived, my loft was three blocks away when 9-11 happened and my children grew up as ground zero children. And soon after 9-11 in the despair, uh, dark uh, times, um, I remembered another friend saying, uh, he's a writer and he said, you know, Eliot's Four Quartets is what saved my life um, be 
in uh, because I was in despair and uh, it was his voice that guided me out of. Um, so whenever you find yourself um, perhaps in a situation where uh, you can't see the future, read this poem. And I remember that. And after 9-11, I started to read uh, A.S. Four Quartets aloud, which you must do, um, because it is music. And uh, you can't hear the music until you read it aloud. And so in the subways of New York City after 9-11, I was reading aloud <laughs> four quartets and nobody cared. <laughs> you know, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing about New York City. And um, what that did was instill in me a kind of hope uh, that only, uh, you know, only that poem can do perhaps. Uh, of course, he's invoking Dante and he's inv invoking uh, Virgil. Um, so this, there's a history that is very rich, you know, if you, if you dig deep and, um, but it is a voice of, of, of a traumatized time um, that has lost hope and, and yet has, has discovered hope. Um, it's a voice of darkness, you know, dark, 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 they all go into the dark, you know, he's, he's Coker. And um, when I read those passages, which I reflect on and I read, uh, even when we're doing the project at Cambridge and other places, you know, we, we read those passages and, and they're the most depressing <laughs> passages in human history, you know, it, it captures darkness so well. Um, and and yet, I remember reading them on the subways of post 9-11 New York and finding hope. I, because this person, this human voice understood darkness, right? Because this person has articulated it in this way, I heard it, I heard that voice and, and as if it was, um, you know, he was sitting next to me and whispering, I know what you're going through. I've been there, you know, but here's my way of articulating what you are feeling that you can't articulate. And I'm going to do it for you because you can't right now. <laughs> and so I, I was, I remember re reading that passage aloud, the most depressing passages and, and feeling, oh my goodness, you know, there is hope. There is, there, there is something in the future that awaits me and I, you know, I need to be creating, I need to go to the studio and create. And I didn't know what that meant, but you know, that, that was the way that I found myself back in, into you know, generative crea creativity. If this weren't an interview, I'd just stop and just meditate on what you're saying. But I'm also aware of time. I, I like to ask all my guests, what lessons have you learned that we can learn from? Mm. Well, I learned, um, you know, uh, Emily Dickinson, right? Hope is a thing with feathers that perches in the soul. It sings the tune without words and never stops at all. 
um, we seek after hope, but the only way to get there is by making something that captures hope or anything, you know, and, and we seek after love and, and it is, is fundamentally this impossible task of trying to find something that we all long for. And yet that impossibility or that hope that, you know, my new possibility perhaps, it, it can drive us to create something immensely beautiful and hopeful and filled with love. And, and so I don't think we, you know, realize the resiliency of what we are built with and the abundance that is built in us. Um, and, and so I, 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 I do, you know, if I could speak back to in time to my younger self, you know, I, I would, I really encourage myself to, um, not stop pursuing those things that I, 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 you know, when I was young, I, I hoped for, right. That, that, that those, those are things that, uh, ideals, you know, maybe there are youthful enthusiasm and idealism, no, it's okay, you know, uh, continue to press into them and to continue to create out of them. And even if you have fractures and brokenness, that's an entry point too. It can be an entry point uh, into your future uh, self. And, and so, uh, you know, value yourself, um, behold your own fragments well, and take care of that. Um, and I think you'll find yourself surprised by how quickly things can turn. Wow. Behold your own fragments. Yeah. My last question, what music are you listening to? So uh, Susie Ivara has composed music, which you can hear on our podcast, by the way. Um, and I've been listening to her music for a long time. I think I think these are really prophetic uh, voices. Um, uh, first of all, I'm earth crying out, but but also you know she notes in our upcoming podcast. You know it's it's not this dire prediction of you know apocalypse. It's it's about what we do with the brokenness and fracture. What we do with what we hear. Nothing is ever going to be the same, you know, in, in terms of like she was talking about water uh, flowing through this glaciers melting and reshaping the rocks. Right. And there are things we can preserve and things that we will lose. And but that also can be a way for us to understand our future. How, how do we live in, in those imperfections and how do we help our children to steward them well? Um, and, and, you know, so, so it, it's really a very hopeful, um, almost a magical sense of her music, musicality, uh, which is percussive, um, but, you know, combined with nature sound and combined with some of the music that she overlays is, is really beautiful and haunting and healing at the same time. Well, I'm definitely going to explore her and uh, listen to the episode of your podcast. Makoto Fujimura, thank you so much. Absolutely. This is going to be something I'm going to be thinking about for days. <laughs> 
Well, let's talk again. And, uh, you know, um, especially as my book comes out and, and next year, I, I'll be uh, January. But, um, you know, I, I, I love to talk to people about that. So fantastic. Well, no, I definitely when it comes out, I will yeah. I will be calling on you again. Sounds good. Thank great you to, so great to have this conversation. Thank, Thank you. Bye bye. Thank you so much to Makoto Fujimura. Such a refreshing take on imperfection and brokenness and not being afraid of it. I can't help but connect this idea to our present day reality. What if we think of this moment in history like a kintsugi bowl? All of these broken pieces, the fragments of our society. What if we take the time to examine them, not turn away, but actually express our pain, our questions, our concerns, our despair, through our art and allow it to be our generative or genesis moment? What if we mend to make new, and in that mending make something more beautiful than before? I suppose the word I'm looking for is hope, and as artists we get to creatively express these tensions, the tensions of suffering that brings hope, and perhaps help be part of giving voice to ideas that other people may have difficulty doing, like T.S. Eliot's poems for Mako. You know, the more I do this podcast, the more I talk to such incredible people, the more I'm affirmed in my own creativity. And I hope in some way by listening, you too are feeling inspired. From the late 1800s until about 30 years ago, canaries were sent into coal mines to detect noxious gases like carbon monoxide as they would react to it quicker than humans. As I said in the interview, Mako compares artists to canaries in the coal mines who smell the poison in culture and start singing. I believe now more than ever we need to sing, sing aloud to break through the noise and create harmony out of dissonance. Please be sure to explore more of Mako's work. As I said in our interview, it really is like a rabbit warren of incredible finds. He writes, talks, makes in such a range of ways with so many different people. I've put details in the podcast blurb. And by now, you know that Holding Up the Ladder is available on numerous platforms, including Acast, SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher and Deezer. Please share, like, subscribe to the podcast, leave comments. You can also donate to the podcast. Just click the link below. And you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at holding up the ladder, hashtag H-U-T-L. Next week, we have a special bonus episode. We're merging the corporate with the creative with my good friend and financial stroke practical sounding board, Ramona Harris, who is global head of language services at leading advertising and marketing company Hogarth Worldwide. We'll be talking about building creative companies, combining how to establish cultural values and why they matter with some practical application. And, and I mean, I have found that not just values, sometimes you can have the same values, but just think really differently. And I have found, for example, you're one of the people yeah. that I find you just think in a different way. And I find that really, really helpful. And so one of the things I um, say is I always find people who are better than you at things. Um, because you're bringing, I mean, like I say, you've done this for me many times. I often um, throw things at you. I'm like, well, what do you think about this? And you'll bring something that I'm like, oh, I hadn't thought of that. And um, that has only benefited me. Or sometimes you might say something I don't necessarily agree with, but it's 
cause me to rethink and think, okay, is this the right choice? And those are good things, you know? Until next time.